I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is Daniel Brass, a partner at Davis Polk and Wardwell in New York. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're going to talk about several things on today's podcast. First of all, how you ended up at Davis Polk and how you ended up practicing M&A. Second, some of your cross-border work. Third, your work for companies in consumer and retail. And then finally, how you have been trying to stay sane in the era of COVID. So with that, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you ended up at, at Davis Polk and Davis Polk in New York. Sure. So, look, I I think if someone had told me in the middle of 2011 that even in 2012, let alone in 2020, I would be a practicing lawyer in New York at Davis Polk, I would have laughed at them very hard. I, I certainly at that point in my life had no ambitions to, to live in the U.S., to work in New York, or to, frankly, seven or eight years into my career, retrain as a U.S. lawyer. But an opportunity came up to go for a secondment to Davis Polk. And frankly, I fell in love with the city. I I love New York. I love living here. I love the energy of the place. And it was a bit of an epiphany that fundamentally the legal systems in M&A were not so different that it was going to prove an ultimate barrier to continuing my career and hopefully progressing internally at a firm. So, you know, one thing led to another, another. And basically by, you know, the early parts of 20. 12, I completed my secondment. And at that point, I decided maybe jumping ship was a good idea. And things moved from there. You mentioned retraining. How much of that did you have to do? Obviously, you had to take the New York bar, but how much did you have to learn? And how much did you have to reorient how you thought about being a lawyer? Yeah, there are a few pieces to that. I, I think the most lighthearted is if anyone had explained to me how painful the bar exam was going to be, I probably wouldn't have made the decision to jump. And that was difficult to do a test of that nature when you'd already been out of formal learning for eight, nine years, let alone never having done a multiple choice exam in your life and certainly no multiple choice exams where there was some concept that the best answer was not necessarily correct. But I, I, I got through that horrible experience. I think on the job, I think there were a few things that had to change. I was not used to the level and volume of M&A transactions that come through a U.S. firm and certainly a major U.S. firm like Davis Polk. Although, obviously, at, at Slaughter and May early in my career, I had faced all sorts of transactions and a high level of work. I was a general corporate attorney rather than an M&A-focused one. So the sheer volume and repetition of work was, was something I had to adapt to. I think stylistically, I had to adapt. But we have a tendency as, as Brits to express ourselves rather differently. And I still do it to this day and sometimes to my advantage. But I certainly got a lot of feedback from people, clients, and internally that I was expressing myself differently. So I would say that something was, oh, that sounds a little bit of a problem. And some a client would turn around to me and say, what are you talking about? That's an absolute disaster. And I would simply say, no, that's exactly what I said. Sounds like a problem. And so you, you realize that actually you need to change the way you express yourself, become a little bit more direct in some of your communication styles. So that was, that was something I adapted to. And then I think in terms of an advisory mindset, people come to M&A transactions in the US and particularly in part of my practice and cross-border with a fear of liability 
which I think is much starker than potentially in UK or Europe, where people, although they plan around liability, they're maybe not in a jurisdiction where litigation is as prevalent. So it surprised me when I first started in the US, the amount of time people really spent focusing on the likelihood of litigation and you know, litigation from all sorts of angles in a deal or relating to post-closing liability. So I think there was a mindset shift to really having that front and center when talking to clients. And at Slaughter and May, you would have trained as a general corporate lawyer, correct? That's correct. Yeah. So I did everything from capital markets to, you know, some credit work to M&A transactions. Did you find that that was helpful for you in making the transition? I think it's helpful in terms of having a grounding in a broader spectrum of corporate work. I think it also helped that I had done a couple of IPOs where actually we'd worked alongside Davis Polk. So the fear of the Red Book and the SEC and somewhat impenetrable rules was not quite as strong for me because I'd at least heard concepts like 144A and things. It was not completely alien. So that was helpful. But then again, I say also the learning curve, therefore, was steeper because if I came in seven or eight years into my career, the sheer volume of M&A I will have done was much less than a peer of mine at Davis Polk. So I had to really hone my skills much faster in the M&A context. And did you do cross-border work at Slaughter in May as well as at Davis Polk? Yes. And and Slaughter's has a strong practice in that. And we notably did a, a few deals toward the end of my time dealing with Chinese SOEs, which was a large trend at that time, 2010, 2011 in the UK. So yes, I had an early exposure to cross-border work. And, and the UK M&A domestic market and the success of firms like Slaughter & May means that they have to rely on doing cross-border work. They can't just feed off the UK deals alone. So to some extent, even as a general corporate lawyer at a place like Slaughter's, you are trained as an international lawyer in a way you might not be even at the most elite U.S. firms. Very much, very much. And even when you work within Europe, a lot of your deals are naturally cross-border because people have pan-European businesses. And so it, it kind of becomes second nature that very rarely was a deal in entirely a UK transaction. So I think it just meant that you had that baseline skill set and exposure from the very beginning. And could you describe how you've applied that sensitivity to the challenges of cross-border work at Davis Pub? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge in cross-border M&A is actually getting people to talk to each other and translating, not literally from foreign languages, but translating culturally and how people express each other into the M&A negotiating environment. I think you can be stuck in transactions in a cross-border deal for far, far longer than in a domestic deal, purely by dint of the fact that people are not really understanding each other. So you can have cultures where communication styles are extremely different, where negotiating styles are different, I've had examples where people misunderstand that culturally certain countries won't have decision makers in a room. So you'll spend a week negotiating, thinking you're making a whole bunch of progress, only to get back into the room on Friday to hear that all the points you thought you'd agreed and conceded, in fact, were given without authority because there's someone else higher up in an institution making all the decisions. And it's learning those cultural nuances and being able to explain them to the client so that you can help successfully drive a deal because the possibility of stagnating deals, I think, is 
infinitely higher in cross-border contexts. Did you become even more aware of those issues because of your own experience moving from London to New York and your awareness of how you had to communicate differently? Yeah, very much. And and I look, I, I hope I bring a sense of understanding of having to adapt to that because I'll watch colleagues who are or, or colleagues or professionals on the other side who are extremely talented at what they do, failing to really get their point across because they're not sitting back and thinking, why is this person not understanding me? And I think I just have that, you know, just through pure exposure and the fact that, look, I've lived in a whole different bunch of countries. I've not just lived in England and the U.S. Uh, and I've practiced in a bunch of countries. So just by exposure, you've learned that there are some tactics that won't work in every room. And, and look, even in a domestic deal, the best M&A lawyers understand that M&A professional negotiation is not a one-gear sport. You have to have a whole load of tools to be able to adapt to any situation. And I think that's just exacerbated in, in an international context. Just out of curiosity, do you see differences regionally, even today in the U.S.? I mean, do people, in your view, from, say, Silicon Valley or Houston act differently from people who have spent their entire careers in New York? Uh, I think so. And I, look, I'm not as good an observer of that because, you know, some, some of my geographical sensitivities within the U.S. are not quite as well honed. But absolutely, and I think it is relevant to even a domestic transaction because stylistically, I think some people naturally respond better to a very direct, very upfront, look, we are negotiating, let's get this done approach. And there are other people who have come from different backgrounds and different areas of the country that are much more open to, look, we, we should talk, we should establish a relationship first before just hammering out some deal terms. And, and certainly still a propensity by some people to say, I don't want to hammer out deal terms over email. I, I want to see you face-to-face. -face. I want to build a relationship and trust. And you need to, on every deal, assess whether that's a part of the deal that you need to be pushing. Obviously, since March, it's been very hard to travel. For the most part, there's been no travel. How has that affected cross-border deals as opposed to domestic deals? And has it given you a keener sense of the times when perhaps people don't need to be in a room as opposed to times when they really, really do need to be face-to-face? -face? I, I think so. And yeah, look, the, the lack of travel has been an impediment in some cases. I mean, I don't think I've spent more time in my life a single period where I haven't been at JFK or a major international airport. So it's kind of curious for me. But I think, yes, there are some instances where people have learned that videos or just more extended periods on phone calls negotiating can work and can cut down the need for travel. I think, though, it has also given a select bunch of deals a greater clarity that in-person is very hard to replicate. So these Zoom calls and all these tools we've been using have really bridged a gap. But sometimes there's just nothing to replace people being in that room together, facing each other, you know, looking, making eye contact the entire time, reading the dynamic of a room. It's very difficult to do that in a Zoom environment. And when you do a negotiation in person, it's not just about the negotiation hours. It's not the nine to five in the negotiating room. It's it's the breakout. It's the you know chat over a cold slice of meeting room pizza, or it's going out for dinner with all sides. When people put the tools down, people let their guard down a little bit more. 
and you get a better understanding of the characters involved. And that helps both sides. It helps bridge any misunderstandings. It makes things more personal. It helps to bridge that cultural divide. So I do think it still has a very important role to play. I just think people may take a different attitude to it rather than my old world three years ago. I, I once did a deal where I pretty much commuted to Rio for seven, eight straight weeks. I think people may decide, look, let's be more efficient with our time. Let's get a bit of the work done, not having to be in person, but be more efficient and select two or three meetings where we can do this done in an intense way and, and really get things done quickly. How would you analogize that to the challenges of training associates? I mean, one thing I've heard over and over from partners is that it is very difficult to train associates if they can't be in a room with the partner on the call, with the partner having the ability to hit mute and explain something or explain something after the call. But do you find that as well? And, and how much of that training can be replicated remotely? Yeah, I, look, I think you hit the nail on the head. The partner's greatest training tool is the mute button. So having someone in my room when I'm doing a three-hour negotiation on an SPA, just having that mute button gives me the ability to stop the conversation and explain to someone why I've just said something I've said, why I'm about to say something I'm about to say, and most importantly, allows me that 30 seconds to tee up an associate and say, why don't you take the next issue? You know, you understand it. This is, you know, in the context of the last hour of the call, this is how I would present it. And you give them that opportunity. I can't do that on Zoom. It's very difficult to, you know, to manufacture those opportunities. And frankly, you know, you're in front of clients the whole time. So you need to be trying to put your best foot forward. And it's much harder to give people that airtime. And I think that's to everyone's detriment because that is how you learn. Yes, a lot of our job is learned by osmosis and by watching and observing. But I think people will have suffered, I'm hoping less than a year, but something around that period of time where those opportunities just won't have been as frequent. Let's switch to, to your work on consumer and retail. Tell us a little bit about that, the deals you've worked on, and why you find those transactions and sectors particularly interesting. Yeah, look, my coverage of consumer retail really has occurred by accident rather than by design, but has been something that over the last couple of years I've certainly tried to focus on. I get a lot of enjoyment out of the space for a couple of main reasons. Firstly, a lot of the clients I have in the space sell or provide services that are extremely relatable to my everyday life. So I love advising clients where I understand their products, where those products have formed you know, a good part of my life. So if you take a client like Ferrero, you know, every product that's in the Ferrero portfolio is a part of my childhood and my upbringing in, in Europe. So I find being able to relate to things means that you just are that much more interested and potentially that that becomes more natural to you in, in how it feeds into the deal. The second piece of it, which I think is fascinating, is the M&A in the consumer retail sector has different flavors to it. So you can be doing a transaction for a client that is going after the latest cutting-edge startup business that they want to get involved in before anyone else knows this exists. And there are plenty of that, certainly in the product space. Or you can be looking at a transaction that's looking at brands that are 30 or 40 years old and have started to sort of lose a bit of their shine. But you've got a buyer who comes in and says, no, 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 I know what I can do with this. 
And by the way, I'm going to slot it into my portfolio. And this is how I'm going to reignite that brand. And I find that piece of things fascinating. And actually, you know, just again, something more human to engage with and understand. And you see the motivations for people in that space. So I find it very enjoyable. I find it relatable. And I think it means that you you start again to talk the language. While it may not be the most highly technical legal space, it is a space where you get to understand how clients think about M&A transactions, why they might be motivated to do them, and therefore what issues may concern them. So could you take just one brand from each category, one brand from the Ferraro category, maybe a brand that you grew up with, and a brand that's cutting edge where you've worked on a transaction that you found particularly compelling? Yeah. So with Ferrero in the US, they've obviously bought a bunch of brands where they're not necessarily brands that are familiar to me. They are US childhood brands. And I found that very, very interesting. And it, to me, it's actually been a bit of a cultural lesson in the US. when talking The Girl Scout colleagues. cookie deal, I believe. Yeah, exactly. And those things are, are fascinating. Is As a foreigner trying to assimilate into the US, you need to understand. And, and, and food and confectionery is a very big part of someone's culture. So I've, I've got a lot of enjoyment out of that and started to be able to relate to colleagues and things over these sort of stories. And then I'll talk to them about the legacy portfolios and say, well, this is what I grew up with. And so we, we do have a bit of a fun dynamic in the office of sharing confectionery and letting each other see each other's side of those things. On the cutting edge piece of things, look, without naming specific clients, we recently did a deal where a client bought a very big, high-profile brand, which wouldn't necessarily be aligned with their portfolio. And it's very exciting to be involved in something like that because... It's very much a joint effort from the business development team internally and the legal team. There are novel issues. There are cultural issues with how are we going to integrate the business? How are we going to get the best out of it? And I think something strategic clients full stop, certainly the larger ones, tend to spend a lot of time thinking about is how do I bring one of these smaller or founder-related brands into my business and not kill the magic? Because a lot of the magic comes from the smaller environment, the room for creativity. And if you bring that into a large company, you need to be a very nimble large company to be able to not damage the brand. And I think my clients tend to specialize in being that and and really do think about that a lot. I would imagine those are situations where having the principals spend perhaps a lot of time together is critical to the success of the deal post-closing. Absolutely. And in fact, those tend to run when we get involved. It's quite often the case that you'll talk to the head lawyer or head business development person and they'll say, look, this has been a two-year discussion. This has been us warming up, trying to understand who these people are, what they could bring within our company, and really getting to the trust that that's what they want to do. Because a lot of these brands do carry a bit of the founder magic or key employee magic, and you need to work out ways of solving those issues. So the client usually has done a lot of the groundwork and we come in and then advise. So mechanically, how can you get yourself to a place where you get the security of understanding those employees and founders are still going to be around, that they're going to be incentivized within the structure that you've created in your company? So yeah, it's that, that takes a lot of groundwork and I think is a much more dependent on personal relationships type of deal. And then finally, you mentioned that this is probably the longest you've gone in your life without getting on a plane. How have you adjusted? 
<laughs> um, I think we've not adjusted massively well. We we do travel a lot, and it's both personally and professionally. My partner and I are, spend a lot of time in planes, visit a lot of countries every year. I think I've compensated by running more than I would normally be running, and I think my knees have taken a battering this year. But that's been a very important outlet for me. We're lucky where we are that we have a beautiful rail trail that I go down to three or four times a week. And in true boring lawyerly fashion, I listen to the same playlist that I've listened to for the last five years for every single run. And it can run up to two hours, so it caters all sorts of runs. But I think I added some to that once every six months. So I use it as my sort of monotonous zone to be in where I can just go out and clear my head because the COVID environment has meant that you don't have as many outlets to clear your head from work or from home or from family or from politics or whatever's going on around you. So I've found that to be a very helpful outlet, even if my tastes in music would drive most people insane. Well, thank you, Daniel. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And thank you very much for having me. For Drinks with a Deal, I'm David Marcus. 